Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Optimize Your Body podcast. I've got my friend here and actually client now, Dr. Reese Jones. I have to put the doctor before it makes. I know you I know you worked hard for that, right? So I had to put the doctor oh, in there. <laughs> it's great to see you, Martin. And and yeah, you know, I, I've got the title doctor, um, but it it, it it's always Reese. I've just grafted really hard to get that. You know, there's no airs and graces. <laughs> of course, yeah. I know I know you as Reese, man. I've known Reese for a while, just for the audience. I, you know, when I was a personal trainer, you could probably hear the lovely accent, right? Especially most of you are in America, right? So uh I know uh I mean, there's lots of different British accents. And Reese is also from Wales. So we're both from Wales. And I know Reese from back home when I used to PT in the gym, used to train at, right? And we yeah, kind of started. And I, well, I knew you, like I said, we're going to get into this, right? But I knew you from the TV, my man. That's when I first knew your face. And then when I saw you in the gym, I was like, oh, it's Reese from, um, you know, Reese's Wildlife Rescue. So, uh, or Patrol, sorry, Reese's Wildlife Patrol. But uh, anyway, just for the audience, Reese is a university lecturer, a reptile specialist. Yeah, you heard that, right? a reptile specialist, we're going to get into that, uh, environmental consultant, researcher, and broadcaster for the BBC. Uh, BBC is huge uh, in the UK, if you didn't know. And the Smithsonian Channel, National Geographic, and the Discovery Channel. He's presented three series of the BBC One Primetime Network series, Reese's Jones, sorry, Reese Jones's Wildlife Patrol, for which he received the BAFTA nomination, which is basically Best Presenter, uh, sorry, Best Presenter, BAFTA nomination in 2014. He presented two series of Reese to the Rescue, which aired on the BBC Wales and subsequently on BBC Two Network. In addition, he presented on Sir David Attenborough's BBC Saving Planet Earth program. If you don't know who David Attenborough is, and you've probably been sleeping under a rock, uh, he's now an author as well, right? I'd like to definitely add this one in there. So I can only imagine the blood, sweat, and tears that went into that, and to write in his own book, by the way. So he's now an author, and he's got a, a book which is going to be uh, officially um, on the market from August the 8th. And yeah, Becoming Dr. Jones, A Wild Life is his book. But hey, that was, a, was that a good intro, my man? <laughs> I tell you what, when I need to write my resume next, I'm coming to you because you've got all the info. That was amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. <laughs> Love it. Hey, Reese. so just for the audience as well, like I say, Reese is a friend of mine. He also recently joined um, my coaching program about a month ago. Um, and as it happens, he's got this this book, which is coming out. And I know a big drive for yours, Reese, right, was to kind of get yourself back on top form for the, for the for the launch of this book. But if you wouldn't mind just telling us before we go into that, just just tell the audience a bit more about yourself and uh i mean i pretty much cover most things there but just tell us a bit more about yourself and yeah we'll just go from there yeah well, I, well i'm an associate professor at, at cardiff something we call it a reader here uh in wales and in the uk um but i know you've got a lot of american uh clients and, and people listening in um and they'll know that as an associate professor um so my day-to-day -day work um there's, there's a little bit of research mostly lecturing uh, and I do a lot of science communication as well. That's really, really important for me. Um, I come from a relatively poor background, so it's important for me to do a lot of outreach as well. So rather than thinking, you know, there's a lot of people out there think that, hey, I'd love to go to university, but obviously someone like me couldn't go. And that's what I used to think. So it's really important for me to 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 get out into the communities. I don't expect people to come to the university get out into the in, into the communities, wider communities, and talk to people that have questions that they wouldn't ask, um, and, and they certainly probably would never have the opportunity to do so. 
Yeah, and I love having people on like yourself, Reese, who've really overcome a lot of adversity because with this, with this podcast, everyone kind of knows they tune in mainly for everything health-related, you know, nutrition, lifestyle, mindset. We have all lots of different experts on, but I really diverse, diversifying the guests I get on now. Um, and I just love people who've got a really interesting story who've overcome a lot of adversity because you know, a lot of people can kind of resonate with that. And let's be honest, you know, we do look up to people who've essentially gone from, you know, rags to riches like yourself, my man. And I just wanted to jump on today and just have you, you know, share some of your story, because as you said yourself, you come from a very, you know, poor background, right? Would you mind just touching on that on, you know, your upbringing? And I guess what, what what got you into kind of like being a reptile specialist? I find that really really fascinating. Yeah. Coming from the UK, you know, what I'm saying there's not many there's not many reptiles just strutting around the streets. <laughs> no, it's true. Well, I I guess you know to go back to the beginning, I was brought up by a single mum on a council estate, on a very poor council estate in South Wales. Um, I should add that you know my mum was a single mum because my biological father left her at four months pregnant. Um, so it's, you know, no fault of her own. Um, and she did a, an amazing job and, um, you know, heartbreaking for her, not for me at the time, uh, was the fact that my biological father did visit me when I was born. He actually came into the hospital to see me and cut the tiny little ID band off my wrist so that I couldn't be traced to him whatsoever um just really horrific so she ended up surviving on very little money um my grandfather turned his back on her because you know a, a child out of wedlock in the late 60s was you know a scandal so uh he turned his back on her my my grandmother was doing her best she had a part-time job as a waitress so she was trying to fund you know put food on the table uh, actually uh, my mum had, I think I'm correct in saying five pound a week, uh, five pound a month, I think it was, um, a, a child allowance, which is about like you know eight or nine dollars, right? US dollars, which yeah, is just pittance. nothing at all. So, how she got through that period, I don't know. Um, she was a fantastic mother. So, to answer the second part of your question, how did I get into reptiles? How did they do that type of thing, you know, especially from the background I had. Well, we lived on the outskirts of Cardiff. And as you will well know, Martin, uh, um, it's lots of green fields and, and even farmland in the area uh, where I grew up. Um, so you'd walk out of, uh, um, you know, a, a sort of city area and straight into farm within a five to ten minute walk. And so what that did, we, we had no physical money, but we were rich in many other ways in that we could get out into these fields. We could look where... Foxes had been, you know, uh, uh, walking around the night before. You could smell them. Um, or where, you know, we could look at different butterflies and birds and insects and, and of course, reptiles in the area. Reptiles were um, the creme de la creme to me because, you know, the, the, they were so difficult to see. They're so, so cryptic in their environment. And for me, if I saw a reptile, that was really special. Awesome. Awesome. And um, just to quickly touch on your upbringing there as well, I find it because, you know, the audience knows a lot about my story, but I was also brought up, you know, without a father around. And, you know, it is a struggle, as you say, with your mother. They do the best they can do, but, you know, it's hard for them, right, to be able to bring, essentially bring a, bring a man up to be a man, yeah? So just curious just to touch on that in terms of, 
what your kind of, I know, as you say, I was the same as well. Didn't have that much money, but rich in many other ways. So, you know, when you were younger, how did you like kind of overcome the fact that you didn't have a father around? Just curious. Because nowadays as well, I think it's very relative because nowadays there's more and more fatherless kids than ever, you know, so. Absolutely. Well, the, 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 the poor aspect is a case of perception. Because you could just sit there and, and say, you know, I'm just, I'm poor. There's, you know, there's no no going forward for me or, or something else. But what I used to do was identify all the areas where I was rich, all the things that I had that I just thought were wonderful. And wildlife for me was 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 quite incredible. Um, I didn't have a father for, it was, it was going on uh, the first four years. Now, my mother did meet somebody um, from the Royal Navy um, and he... Uh, and my mother married actually on my birthday. Uh, so the, the anniversary and the birthday always came around each year. We have a huge cake each year. And so that was, you know, that was good. So, um, and I got adopted eventually at 17 and three quarters. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> just, just, just in time. Um, but it is difficult. Um, I had my grandfather around as, as a male figure, and I think having that balance of, of male and female input is, is important for a child growing, you know, uh, and, and, and meeting the potential. I think it helps in that balance. And my grandfather took on, I suppose, the mantle of that father figure. And even though he was highly resentful of my mother for becoming pregnant, none of that was passed to me. He loved me, um, but in the same way, he would buy lots of toys. So you know, um, people in the in the surrounding neighbourhood would say, "Oh, look at all the toys he's got! You know, he's got these wonderful toys." But he would never buy me clothes, would never buy food, never do, you know, never do anything that a father should have done. Um, and he clearly knew the parameters of how far his engagement went. But later on in life, he he was instrumental in helping me become the person I am today. Mm, awesome stuff. So talk us through how you went from, you know, obviously getting a bit of a almost obsession, right, with reptiles. And then you ended up, like the evolutionary stuff. You told me about the book, The uh, the Third Chimpanzee, right? Still, still one of my favorite books there on evolution. I read The Chimp Paradox and then that one. But I'm really fascinated. I'm really fascinated in the evolutionary stuff and human behavior and stuff. Um, what kind of, talk us through your journey a bit more in terms of what, took you from like how you ended up elevating to where you did in terms of getting on TV and all that kind of stuff. How did it, how did it kind of, you know, transform your career and stuff? From the very beginning, what sort of initiated, what was that spark? Yeah. Yeah. What, what was a spark? I'm just curious yeah, to know how, how that, uh, yeah, it went. Yeah. I think that if I think back to what was the original spark, what really set it off, I was always sort of, you know, one foot in nature anyway, you know, I couldn't wait to get out into the fields and the dell and all things like that. But um, there was one incident in particular I can remember. And it was um, Sunday afternoons, we used to go down to a place I've just mentioned it now, the Drope, which were these beautiful rolling fields. And there was a small tributary there, which led off into the big river Ely, which you'll be very mm -hmm. aware of. And not many people used to go there. It was full of wildlife. It was absolute little treasure trove of wildlife. 
And I always used to love going there. I remember my mother saying this one day, hey, we're going to go, we're going to go down to the drope. It's going to be fantastic. I was so excited. My, you know, Welsh grandmothers, you know what they're like, for your going anywhere, you're having a good meal. Okay. So she made, you know, you're going to have your cooked dinner. So we had our Sunday lunch. I can remember it was, you know, fit for a, a builder. Uh, there it was, this huge Sunday lunch. I think it was some roast pork and some roast potatoes, apple sauce, of course, you'll remember over the top of the pork, uh, lots of gravy, some peas and beans. And I'd eaten this. I wolfed it all down. Huge meal. That was great. But what I'd forgotten was that my grandmother was also cooking apple pie and custard. We have to eat that. Okay. So once you've eaten your big meal, we have that as well. And I can remember at the end of it, I was thinking, oh my goodness, I was really feeling sick. And uh, my mother said, right, we'll go, let's go down, go down to the drope now. So we started walking down and picked up my little, uh, a little book that I used to take with me everywhere as well. So I wasn't very good at reading, but I love pictures. And my favourite book was the Ladybird Book of Dinosaurs, which I was obsessed with. They used to come with me everywhere I went. So I picked that up, off we went. And I can remember walking down there, hottest day of the year, absolutely feeling sick to my stomach so full my stomach was so distended I, oh my goodness I felt dreadful so by the time we got to the drope my mum said what do you you know what do you want to do I said to be honest I just want to have a gonna go and have a sit down by the tributary there was a little little willow tree there I'm gonna sit underneath there I'm just gonna just sit and let my food go down just for a short while if that's okay so I took my book sat in the tree sat in the bank of this tributary and it wasn't dangerous of course not a big bank and I'm about I'd say about eight years old here and uh, I'm sat underneath this willow tree and I'm listening to the mosquitoes buzzing around around me. It's baking hot. There's like a little cold breeze now because I'm in the in the shade of this tree. And I'm listening to the water babble along. Slowly but slowly, just feel myself nodding off and I'm away with the fairies, totally asleep. And you know what it is, you sort of hear like a fly will go past you and you sort of come in and out of that sort of sleepy, you know, uh, position. And eventually I felt there was this, this sort of rolling, sort of crunching noise, but I sort of ignored it. I thought it was something to do with the, with the, uh, with the stream. And then I felt a wet forked tongue flick against my leg and literally nearly took off I mean it was literally terrifying it was just I, I opened my eyes looked down and there was a huge female grass snake which is going across the top of my of my foot it's hard enough to see these things to have one so near and at that time I honestly didn't know we even had snakes in Wales I've never seen a snake because they were so hard to see and I did what most people would have done I sort of panicked and this launched the snake up into the air, landed in the tree. I heard it splash in the tree. We ran up the bank, screaming for my mum. You know, mum, and she, she got up and, and she, are you all right? And by the time I got to the top of the bank, I thought, that was amazing. What did I do? I drowned the snake. I've killed the snake. So I get back down to the bank. There's nowhere to be seen. I've killed it, drowned the snake. And it, I, I sit down in complete remorse and I'm just there reading my book. Thinking, oh no, what it was so shit. It was literally the most amazing thing I'd seen. And I've, I've killed this animal, you know, I've drowned it. And then about five minutes later, I saw it on the other side of the bank. And there it was, and of course it had been dipped in water. So it's a beautiful emerald colored snake glistening in the sun. 
big gold band around his neck and it sort of went past, eyed me and continued on. Literally the most amazing animal that I'd ever seen. Because we're not looking at a small snake here, we're looking at an animal which is about 1.2 meters long. That's crazy. Uh, I've never seen any snakes in what I've never seen any snakes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So at that time, I didn't know we had snakes. And so a 1.2 meter long snake going by, and I it's just me and that snake. And it was a magical moment. It was just utter magic. I remember I remember at the time looking down at my Ladybird Book of Dinosaurs, looking up, looking down the Ladybird Book of Dinosaurs, looking back up this huge reptile and going, I found the last refuge of the dinosaur is here in South Wales. No one knows it's here. <laughs> but it was just the most magical encounter. Incredible. Now I was even when I used to go to, you know, the the wildlife places or the uh, the what is it, the uh, zoo and stuff. I would never have the snake on my shoulders. You know what I'm saying? It's not for me. I'm sure yeah, people listen to do that because, anyway. Yeah. No, 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 no. I know. I know. It's just pretty cruel anyway, isn't it? Right. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Yeah. That's probably just as well. I didn't do it anyway, but you know, with that, cause a lot of people, let's be honest with snakes. It's like, we've got this evolutionary program thing inside of us, right. To be essentially terrified of them. Right. <laughs> because. To a degree. Yeah, to, to, to a, to a degree. degree. But but it's yeah. but it's it's like it, it, obviously yeah. Go on, you continue. But I was just going to say because obviously no, some no, of no. the most it, venomous like animals on the planet are snakes, aren't they? Yeah, we read a lot about this. I mean, there's all sorts of um, um, interesting points I've read that our color vision, our ability to pattern recognize. Uh, That's is what I read. Yeah, do, yeah, is is to to be able to immediately recognize snakes uh, and be able to avoid them and all the rest of it. Um, and this, these are great theories, and they're all good. But I live with tribal people, and I've just seen, you know, young kids going out, oh, snake, <laughs> and they'll just pick it up straight away. And it's very much like um, the only thing I can, I can, uh, uh, you know, when you, you you see young kids and they're playing by an electrical socket, and oh, you can poke my fingers in there, and then the mum comes along and says, don't do that, and they never do it again. Okay, there's only mum needs to tell them off once. It's exactly what I see with snakes as well. So the young ones come along, oh, look at that, great. And they go to pick it up. They only do it once. And then the mama will come along and they never touch that snake again, ever. Not as soon as mama's told them not to, that's the end of it. They never go near it. And I think that's where a lot of the fear comes from, uh, is that, uh, you know, we're the same with spiders and things like that, is the fact that we're told not to go near them or we see the reaction of other people and we immediately think, well, there must be something to be afraid of there. Mm. Uh, and the other issue, of course, is with both snakes and spiders, unlike a dog or a horse or uh, even a cow or something like that, something that we are fairly familiar with, they're mammals, and we can see that the locomotion is with, you know, the, the, they've got four legs. and know roughly how quickly they move and how they move, so I know the safe distance, the safe parameters I have, and probably where I'll end up engaging with them uh, and, and how far I need to stay away. That's very difficult for a human to process when you've got an eight-legged spider or a snake with no legs. And, and what happens is you, you go into panic. So panic would normally um, be initiated, you know, when you flush the blood ready to, your, your limbs ready to fight something, you know, a fight or flight reaction. Um, but because we were, we're not going to fight the animal, we normally just, uh, we don't quite know what to do. And it's panic. Okay. So it's, uh, it's that same panic we feel, um when or certainly when i i used to feel when i'd go in and read um i'm dyslexic as you know and so if i went in and, and was in a 
a literary class and somebody would say, um, could you read the next paragraph? Which I go into panic um, because, you know, fight or flight would be, um, well, I just, you know, attack what's, uh, what's in front of me. Well, I can't go up and punch the teacher for asking me uh, to, uh, to read the next paragraph. So, you know, I just uh, uh, panic. So all that blood gets ripped from my stomach. I go into this panic mode uh, and I end up reading the paragraph and then feeling very relieved when the next person is asked to speak. Um, so, yeah, the human body reacts in, you know, there's uh, everything we do, there is an evolutionary reason for why we react the way we do. In the modern world, you know, where we're surrounded by lights engaging with animals that we never would have engaged with, when we're pushed together into, uh, you know, communities at a density that we, we never would have evolved to work within, there are lots of our behaviours now which uh, are not really complementing our lifestyle and why we've got to really um, analyse that and be able to, uh, for us to, to have a better life, if you know what I mean. Mm, yeah, and speaking of behaviours and lifestyle, with the tribes that you actually spend time with in Africa and stuff, I know the Hadza was one of them. Was there any other tribes you actually went and lived with? So the, the Maasai is the one... Sorry, the Maasai, I, not the Hadza, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 it's fine. So the Maasai, and, and I mean, I'm talking about the Maasai. What part of Africa was that? about Eastern Africa... Um, and, you know, there'll be lots of people that say, oh, I spent time with the Maasai, and you say, where were you? I was in the Masamara, and I bought some beads off them. They're probably not even Maasai. They're people dressed up as Maasai. And, and in fact, there's a tribe down there called the Samburu, uh, and they they basically will dress up like Maasai and sell beads and everything. And everyone's happy. That's great. If you're happy with that, that's great. Um, what I do, I've spent, um, oh, my goodness me, I dread to think how long, uh, let, let's just say, you know, probably decades now um, working in Eastern Africa um, with the Loita Maasai, which is the furthest out, outpost of uh, the Maasai nation in Kenya. Um, it's very, very remote. And I can remember the first time I was there, oh, it must have taken around four or five years before I could even get a photograph of a Maasai a real Maasai. Um, if you asked for a photograph, they would look at you very suspiciously. You know, there were there weren't many, there were very, very few white faces in that area at the time. And um, you go to take a photograph and you would set everything up and at the very last second, they'd go, they'd just look away, look away to the left or the right. So all you've got is a perfect shot of their ear uh, instead of a full on, you know, face. Um, and they used to enjoy doing that as if you don't have the privilege to take a photograph of us, you don't, you know, and you had to earn that privilege. You had to earn that respect with them. Um, and that is something that I am uh, humbled that I've managed to do uh, over, over many, many, many years of engagement. Mm. And how was that experience, man? Tell us about some of the adventures that you had out there. What is it that you, uh, what would you say like the biggest lessons and I guess just the biggest kind of like, because um, it must be so transformational just being around those people and actually being in Africa where essentially, you know, we first started <laughs> evolving as humans, 
you know, because my, my dad, because uh, like I said, you, my dad wasn't around. Long story short, my dad, um, like I said, wasn't around, but I built a bit of a relationship with him in my teenage years and he was in the Welsh Guards. So in the, just for anyone listening back, he was in, he was in the army. He went out to the Falklands and stuff like that. Um, and basically they went to Kenya in the eighties and he had this story where they were staying out basically in, you know, I don't know whether it'd be the Savannah or whatever it was in the jungle, essentially. And they basically fell asleep in the nighttime and they had like the fire and stuff like that. And they had a, a guy in the, in the Jeep with a live round, but they all got drunk. Right. You know, soldiers drinking, they all got drunk. Right. They woke up and they left meat out. They got drunk, left loads of meat out on the fire and they woke up in the, and they could, and when they were trying to go to sleep, they could hear the lions roaring and stuff and they could see their eyes in the distance. And then they basically fell asleep. So in a slumber, right. From drinking, woke up, the guy in the thing was, he'd fell asleep. Right. So he had the live round there, but he fell asleep. So he was useless anyway. And all the meat was gone from the fire. Like, you know, so the lions that came and eaten <laughs> and they all yeah, survived they were, it. There are, there are many times I've woken up because I, I sleep in either a, a mosquito net, which is what mm. I prefer to sleep in or a small tent. And there's many times I've woken up in the morning and there's big cat tracks around there. They're just coming to have a look. Oh. Oh. I, I woke up once actually uh, just in a mosquito net and I woke up. And it was a really, really weird smell. Why is that smell? Uh, oh, like like decaying meat type smell. Really, really weird smell. And I opened my eyes, and there was a, a leopard looking over the top of me. Not not hostile. Just had no idea what I was. And as soon as I opened my eyes and moved, it sort of panicked and ran off. It was the closest encounter I've ever had with a leopard. Jeez. Um, and you know, I've woken up other times where. Uh, I, I think the funniest one was I woke up in a, a tiny little tent. You know, the, these are not tent tents. These are things you sort of throw over you, you know. And uh, I woke up and, and I thought, wow, you know, what is the time? I thought it would be light by now. It's, you know, it's still dark. What is going on? And I'm trying to find my watch and I'm trying to find this. And it's really dark. What is it? And then I saw the top of the tent just go down slightly where an elephant's trunk was just touching it very gently like this. And then the elephant walked away. It had been stood over my tent, just having a look at what I was, gently touching. And people think that elephants come through, stampeding through uh, areas. Well, I, I can tell you, I, you know, I have to do washing and everything when I'm out there. Obviously, you wash in a, in a bowl and you, you run a line across from a tree to a tree, put your washing out to dry. And I've never had a washing line taken down by an elephant. But lots of elephants come and just work out what they are poke the washing, then they walk off. <laughs> Never had a, uh, anything trampled by them. It's so, you know, they're generally really sweet, as long as you don't frighten them. Mm. Um, and obviously, if they've got cars, you stay well away. Um, but it, it, the interactions I've had with wildlife have been out, out there, have just been incredible. What about the baboons? The what about baboons, Reza? Because my dad was telling me a story about the baboons. He said they were terrified. of they Because they used to, I hate to say this, right, but they used to use them as like target practice and stuff, apparently. Yeah. So tourists again have ruined them. So I can remember going to Kenya and I would sit with baboons, uh, even the big males, and they've got, you know, the canines are just incredible on them. They come through the camp. You didn't feed them. They were fine. They'd go past the, the young would go back. You'd see the females carrying the young. Wonderful. Not a problem. Then people started feeding them. Mm. And that was the issue. So they, there was a, a, a tourist attraction actually in Kenya called Baboon Cliff. And I can remember visiting that before. And you could sit with the, you know, the big adult males. Not a problem at all. 
Then people would come in, start feeding them bits of sandwich and all the rest of it. Now you wouldn't get out of the car. It's really sad. You know, it's, it's, you know, we have a great responsibility. We're going there. You know, it's not Disney World. This is real. And you, you, you can't just go around feeding animals and engaging in that. You know, there are parameters. There are responsibilities uh, and, and those haven't been met. And that has led to a lot of wildlife interactions, um, you know, just unfortunate ones mm. uh, and we'll see more of it you know people getting out and taking selfies with them you just go what are you doing mm. i saw somebody um a video of somebody jumping out of a car to get a selfie with a lion oh my god and that to me you talked about evolution that that's natural selection right there mm. if you're stupid enough to do that you know absolutely crazy. ridiculous crazy um, what, was, uh, Reece, what was your um your scariest ever experience out there in the wilderness with animals i mean encounter with animals or just in general like what comes to mind um I, i've had funny ones i you know scariest not well, oh, let me I, let me I, say I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say scary i see the closest call or the closest you've been to death oh i've had lots of close calls um i woke up with a boom slang in my bed once uh boom slang is a is, is a venomous snake quite a uh, i don't like using the word deadly snake but um potentially you know you don't want to get bitten by it let's say you know especially when you're in the middle of nowhere and i woke up and it was in uh it had come into the sheet because i'm nice and warm at night it gets really cold in kenya at night of course it came in a you know snuggled up it was fine as soon as it saw you know felt me move it gently moved off and that's all you had to do not panic just let it move off um, but I've woken up with uh, all sorts of animals around me. I got stuck in a forest, uh, in a fire once. And these fires, they rip through um, the, you know, the area. You, you get lots of fires which can start by, you know, either a piece of broken glass or something just ignite. I mean, it's, it's bone dry, you know, the habitat of the savannah is bone dry. And I can remember one day you could smell smoke and I was like, oh, God, run. So he literally ran down towards this river and jump you know into the river to get ourselves as wet as possible and realize we were going to double back into this fire because it's burning so rapidly through that actually once you get through the the immediate wall of fire it on the other side you're fine and that's what i decided to do and uh so i rang through one side to the other got to the other side and oh that was lucky Whew, looked up like that right right into the eyes of a lion right in front of me uh and she just done exactly the same as me as we nicknamed a tinderella i can remember <laughs> and she was uh, uh she, you could see a little you know a couple of scorch marks and she just looked at me i looked at her she went, you know just walked off it was it was it wasn't an issue she just like you know it was like oh that was close call and off we went so it looked worse than what you know you saw this wall of flame coming towards you it was really frightening but you realize it's burning so fast that you can actually run through as long as you're you know fairly wet you can run through it and get through to the other side um but yeah lots of lots of close encounters um how about tiger reese yeah. i read a really really good book called the tiger have you read the tiger i haven't it's about the siberian tiger and it's a true right. story it's a true story back in like the 90s long story short there was like this siberian tiger going through what is it like russia like obviously siberia russia and they apparently they're the, like they're the most like I guess I don't want to use the word deadly either, but they're the, they're the strongest obviously type of tiger 
and because obviously they've had to evolve in that, you know, they've originated in Africa, right? It's in the freezing yeah. cold temperatures in the Siberia. So they've got, they've had to evolve to adapt to that, of course. Yeah. But anyway, it's going around again, humans, you know, messing things up. And it, it ended up this one tiger just going around and hunting and just on a manhunt and killing loads of people. Um, but what I found interesting, which I didn't know, is like tigers, they hunt on their own, right? So like lions, generally, they stay in packs. Tiger, it will literally. If this this tiger was just just taking his time and just just burning through people, basically just tearing them up and then moving on with his day, like you know. But and and no one ever saw it because I when I went to I went to Tam- Temanagara. Have you ever heard of Temanagara National Park in Malaysia? I went yeah. I went there and basically the guy there, the the main guy who was taking us round, he's lived there for like fifteen years and he's he even he's only ever seen a tiger once, you know. Like those things are so smart. But have you ever, you've obviously, I, I'm assuming you've never seen a tiger, a wild one. Well, we don't, I mean, there used to be the land masses. You, you said very interestingly there, you said with tigers evolving in Africa, of course, they're, they're Asian. But oh, lions, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. No, 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 it's fine. You'll still find lion. You know, the, these land masses used to be far more um, accessible. So, you know, there's Asiatic lions, for instance, that, that are hunting impacts. But the you know the tigers will yeah generally they only meet up to 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 really breed, um, and that's it. But they're huge, um, and they are very difficult to find in the wild. So we were we were doing we had a great project at Cardiff actually, where we were collecting um, the poos. I did a lot of non-invasive sampling of the species that I was studying. So it used to be the case that when you were studying these animals, I can remember speaking to a South African friend of mine when I I first began as a researcher. And I said, uh, I'm going to be studying this population of reptiles. And he said, right. And I said, "How how do you do that in Africa, in South Africa? He said, well, you shoot the population and then you look at the genetic makeup of them and see what they were. I don't actually want to wipe out the population. I actually want to study the population so I started doing something called um, non-invasive sampling, which was looking for the natural shed DNA from these different species. So that could be anything from um, if it's a mammal hair, if it's a reptile shed skin, um, could, but it could be teeth. I included roadkill. Something's killed. It, it's fair game, obviously. Um, eggs, all sorts of things to get the DNA out of. And one of the other things that did was poo. Um, because obviously, uh, you know, an animal is defecating a lot, really, really different. There's a lot of nasty, without going into it in, in detail, there's a lot of nasty elements to poo that break down DNA. So it's harder to get DNA out of poo, but it's not impossible. And there was a fellow researcher of, of, of mine that was working with Tiger. And he decided to make me a little video um, of uh, what he was doing. And he was out um, uh, in India collecting uh tiger poo and from this poo he was going to be able to look at the population density and the, and be able to identify the different tigers from the genetics the dna in the poo fabulous poo is just lying around you collect it and you get a real idea of the makeup of how many tigers are in the area and all the rest of it and i remember him sending me this absolutely brilliant piece of video he said watch to the end so i said fine and he's there going, Reese, he said, here I am. He said, I'm looking uh, for the DNA from tiger poo. I've never seen a tiger in this area, but we know tiger are there because here is the evidence, the DNA in the poo. And he's finished the video, he's very proud. When you play the video back, as he's talking to me about the DNA and the tiger poo behind him, this big tiger walks out, looks at him, 
and walks on back into the rushes. <laughs> and he had absolutely <laughs> no idea that Tiger had gone past. It was just the oh funniest my god. Thing. Jeez, that is like, and it just goes to show, doesn't it? I was going to ask you just quickly on that topic. What's your thoughts on the future of everything? You know, with animals and certain animals becoming more and more, you know, obviously essentially dying off. And what's your thoughts on the way it's going to go? Because it's really sad, man, you know? Really sad with the way it, it's going. It is. And, you know, climate change, I just used to get laughed at. I used to take my students out onto beaches in uh, in Kenya, um, down in an area called Wutamu, and I used to talk about plastic pollution. This is nigh on 20 years ago. And people say, plastic pollution? Is that a problem? It's a real problem. Here are some refuge sacks. We're going to walk the length of the beach and we're going to collect the plastic you see. By the end of the beach walk, each of them had a full refuge bag of plastic that had been washed up on the beach. They didn't know about it. Um, one of the other things that um, I did as well was I was working down in Mutamu with some, some great friends of mine there that are working with turtles. And turtles are ectothermic animals. So Unlike you or I, if we get cold or we get exhausted, we, we, we tend to eat loads, we graze loads. Certainly my students were doing that. They were, you know, constantly grazing students. Um, if you're an ectothermic animal, you're able to live in areas where other animals might find really, really difficult by using, you know, the big yellow thing in the sky there, which is radiating out free energy. So we all think we're really clever with our solar panels and whatnot now, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, reptiles have worked out that, hey, I can get free energy from that. And they regulate their body temperature from the environment around them. Um, and this works well um, most of the time. But if you're a sea turtle, um, if you're, you know, we've got green turtles out there, we've got hawksbill turtles and the hawksbills in particular, and they like to eat jellyfish. So what they do is in the morning when it's cold and, the, and what's called, they come to the surface and they heat up on the surface of the sea. Fantastic. Dive down, grab some jellyfish. And if they get too warm, they can stay under the water then in the cooler currents. But of course, what was happening is they were going down, there were little plastic bags were blowing into the sea and these plastic bags blow up and they look superficially like a jellyfish. So the turtles were coming along, eating these plastic bags. They were getting stuck in the stomach. And people say, yeah, yeah, we know all about that. And it kills the, the turtle. Um, we, we know all about that. Well, no, it, it, it it's far more sense that it, it is, if you see this happening, they consume the bag. And then like you or I, if we get a bad stomach, you, you bloat a little bit. Um, and of course, if you're a reptile that is an aquatic reptile that is, diving when it needs to get cooler and you've got a big bloated stomach you can't do it you've, you've, you've got a lot of gas in you and you you bob to the surface all the time so what was happening those turtles were, were cooking to death on the surface you know, they, could, they couldn't avoid the midday sun and so what we were doing was and there's going to be lots of people disagree with this i'm just telling you what we were doing at the time for education purposes we were talking to local fishermen about this and saying, hey, you know, we we really need you to, to help the turtles. You know, if you see a turtle in distress, come and bring it into this wonderful centre that's in, in Mutamu and they will, you know, uh, uh, help the turtles. And in the end, while I was there, we were actually paying the fishermen. What are you going to make for the meat of this animal? They said, okay, great, we'll pay you double. Um, and they were bringing the turtles to us, just found this one on the, on the surface, you know, and... 
you're able to x-ray the turtle, you're able to see where the blockage is. And then we were running lines into the stomachs of these turtles and putting in human windies and cod liver oil and laxative, mixing it all up and pumping that into the stomach of the reptile in the hope that, and in most cases it worked, that it would just lubricate that plastic through uh, the, the sort of elementary canal and, and, and they'd be able to just, you know, pass it through their system. But then they're really weak. It's like, you know, you imagine if you didn't go to the gym for a couple of months, you come out and you say, oh, my, my muscles are, you know, not good. I need to get fit again before I get, you know, to be able to, um, you wouldn't take an Olympic runner and sit him down for a year and then stick him in a race. Um, so you need to get the muscles strong again. So you build them up. One of the things we do is we used to take them out to the sea, little collar and lead, and take them out to sea bath them just the most amazing thing so you'd be swimming along in the sea with this turtle swimming along next to you and if it was looking strong enough you could take the, the collar off and just let that turtle go back to the ocean one of the most magical moments to see that turtle go off and you think that that, that is a great job done there but you know the, man is having a massive impact on this planet i was able in my television programs to show one of the first localized extinction events um, that we had, not in Africa, in Europe. In, and this was in Italy. And I pointed out that Italy was going to be where we were going to see the tipping point first. We've, we've seen that over the last couple of days. Now, I'm talking about, this was back in, in the, uh, oh, let's have a think, 2003, 2004. We were talking about this. And... We had snow voles. Um, so just to explain this very briefly, um, if you've got a mountain, classic mountain, and that mountain is very cold at the top and it's quite warm at the bottom. At the bottom of this mountain, we had your standard um, field vole. And they were really, really good at finding food and breeding very, very quickly, but they didn't like the cold. And right at the top of the mountain, you had snow vole. The snow vole, not as quick as breeding, not as good at finding, well, they were really good at finding food, foraging in freezing conditions, but they lived right at the top. They were cold tolerance specialists. And what we were seeing over a 20 year period was that colder climate was disappearing. And so we had data from 20 years previous showing the snow vole population, very, very fit at the top of the mountain and the field vole at the bottom uh, were doing well as well. And when we went back 20 years later, um, we put all the traps out, didn't get the snow voles at the top of the mountain. And on the last day of filming, right at the very top of the, of, of the mountain, we caught a field vole. And that had just completely, that population completely outcompeted the snow vole to the point of a localized extinction. They're not extinct across their entire range, but on that mountain range, they are now extinct the great thing was at the bottom of that uh, uh, mountain we had a field station a weather station and it was able to show that the decline of that species was was definitely due to increased temperatures uh, and they were measured they were slowly going we were seeing huge climatic change and that was directly affecting the species around us and we were able we we can there's absolutely no question that we can attribute that data now um, to, to 
to to man-made climate change. Mm, makes sense. Makes sense. Crocodiles, Reese. What's your experience with crocodiles? Now they fascinate me, crocodiles, because they're literally like dinosaurs, right? You know, because they and and they've they're absolute savages, right? I mean, they've evolved, they've evolved for all these years, and aren't they one of the and aren't they one of the oldest like kind of surviving type yeah, of animals on the planet? I mean, what's your because the dinosaurs they're not going nowhere. They're not. I mean, I live in Australia, right? They're not going nowhere. These well, like out of all you know, like extinction and animals kind of dying off, like crocodiles surely have got the highest chance of just continuing to survive. They're absolute. They seem to you know, evolve and adapt to anything, don't they? If that niche exists for them where they can survive, you know, a species can exist as long as the niche can support them. Mm. Um, you know, so if if basically if it got very, very cold, um, you know, and, and the, the thing is that people don't fully appreciate, not everybody, that increases in temperature now can mean a colder, very, very cold future. Um, you know, because temperatures swing and you don't want this 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 swinging. You want to keep a nice, stable temperature. This is the, the Goldilocks zone that we've all grown up in. Um, that's what we want to maintain. What we don't want is the spinning top mentality where the spinning top, you know, if you touch the edge of a spinning top and it starts to do that, that's when species go extinct because they can't hang on to uh, within the temperature range. And, the and you know, the, you know, if they're plant eaters, the plants that they eat don't you know survive and the climate changes look at the giant panda you know it's it's there eating bamboo those bamboo forests go yeah it's mm. it's not it's going to be really really challenging Sad, you mentioned crocodiles there though. yeah yeah um, i know i'm curious to know and, like what your encounters yeah. would be crocodiles any saltwater crocodiles they reese out of all animals you know they terrify the shit out of me crocodiles you know no crocodile they are they are they've they've they can be quite funny though as well um there's a I I can remember I, I've got to tell you actually and you I don't think you know this I when I first got with the BBC they were really really interested in all the work I did and they said we're going to do this program it's going to be called Snake Man and the first thing that went through my head is that that's definitely a title for after the watershed I tell you we yeah. can't we can't call it Snake Man it can't be that I'll call the title of this podcast the Snake Man for sure <laughs> exactly yeah. so I thought um that, you know we've got to get a different title for this so we went out we shot in Kenya and we were shooting out there and there were lots of things like you know as we were bombing along to different areas was pointing out different things of interest to them uh, I remember I gave the the um, they've obviously got you know all these health and safety you know sort of certificates in place and all the rest of it and I gave them a heart attack I said oh I know this this rhino one second jumped out with this rhino oh my god you know we're not covered for that no it's fine sorry I know the rhino so you know we were we were filming with this rhino um, and then we needed to stop off anyway and I said oh it's a river system here we should clack crocodiles um, and, and do a bit of filming there. Sorry, as if you make the you know the noise that a, a crocodile makes as it you know slams its jaws together, then if they hear that they think oh you know there's another crocodile eating. So what I'll do you know they normally pop up to investigate what's going on, um, and you can make another noise as well which sounds like a, a, a youngster. I I just did the crocodile clapping at the time, and so they said right okay so I put them up on a bank and I said right you just just film down here now just trust me. Uh, and we'll get some nice footage mic'd up. Sorry, where is this now? Where, where, where is this exactly? This is um, uh, not a million miles away from a place called Salagate uh, in Kenya. Okay. Um, and uh, it's very, very dry region. But okay. There's a big river that goes to the middle of it, and it's full of crocodile. 
Um, these these are Nile crocodile. They're okay. big crocodile, big yeah. big crocodile. No doubt. And so um, I went down to the beach, and what I'd done, um, we had some some goat in a bucket, you know, chopped up goat, which you're going to eat, chopped up in a bucket. And I went down to the water's edge, and I did some crocodile clapping, which is what a lot of the locals will do. And this, all of a sudden, we see these these eyes come up. So I said, right, I said, look, just keep filming. I'm going to show you how to do this. And you, you're going to be able to see a crocodile come out of the water and all the rest of it, and, and I'll give it some food, and it'll make interesting viewing. So started clapping, look forward, pair of eyes, break the you know surface of the water, and it goes forward. That's a big crocodile. That's going to be great. And then to the left of that, so another pair of eyes come up. Mm -hmm. it's that's brilliant so i'll just bring these crocodile out that's great so this crocodile comes forward another one and then to the to the right of the original one you see another set of eyes come up like that another set of eyes so you've got these six crocodile now that we gently bring out of the water and i walk along feed them each some goat like that and then when we finish get the bucket away and then gently gently push them back into the water okay just tap them tap the note get them back into the water and I turned to the camera and I said, and that's crocodile clapping. I walked off off screen. And the director went, Katya, that's amazing. He said, oh, I thought you were only getting one crocodile out of the water. I said, yeah, so did I. So, you know, there was no control over it at all. As soon as one crocodile comes up, that's the end of it. You know, you get one crocodile come up, another crocodile, that, that, that's it. You've got no control over it. But so so, when, they all start, so when they all start coming up, so you see their eyes come up. And then they start, and what happens then? They just start kind of moving towards, like, where did you where did you put the goat? Where did you actually put the? We just had chopped up goats. So basically, these crocodile they come out onto the beach, yeah. and they don't come up too far, too close, um, but just close enough that you can feed them, and you know the safe parameter to be able to feed them to stay with them, and then gently get them back. Can they the can water. they move fast on ground? Crocodiles? No. Yes, they can. They can. Can they really? Yes. I've always been curious yeah. about this. Yeah. So if I'd have turned the other way and started running, yeah, but it's all down to your behavior as well. I see. Okay, and standing your ground and, and being authoritative. Yeah, yeah, got you. So speaking of the, uh, is it the Maasai, the Maasai tribe, yeah? Maasai, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, just to switch gears a bit, obviously you joined the, the program recently, right? And just curious to know in terms of like, where you were at with because health and fitness has always been a big part of your life right staying active and uh it, it has to be because has the places be. i am because there's no you know we, we have a little box we take with us which said first and only aid because yeah. no one's coming to help us yeah, yeah of <laughs> so course you've got to stay fit and healthy. <laughs> yeah so, so i see so that was what kind of really was the main thing to get you into was did you if i got this right i was thinking this the other day i never made this up did you do any type of martial arts or anything or am i making that yeah, up yeah i am a budging ninjutsu i used to uh, be a budging ninjutsu instructor not an instructor anymore still a practitioner um i'm very proud of that and uh i've done a lot of martial arts since i was a young boy since i was you know uh, my mum made my first gi for me um she, she got some material i had this wonderful spot um white with blue polka dot ghee that she made for me it was wonderful mm. uh i thought i probably thought it was going to be the next shogasuki then mm. uh but um yeah yeah so, you've always 
Yeah, you've always been, because I, I did, uh, I, sorry to interrupt, I did martial arts when I was younger as well. And uh, it's always been part of your life then, that exercise, right? Because that gets you in it from a young age. And then when you got into your line of work, but just curious as well for the audience, they'll be very interested in this because I talk a lot about the animal-based diet. I have some experts on within the carnivore space. And obviously, what is it you learn from them? Because obviously they eat essentially what's around them, right? Which is animals and whatever else is growing, right? And when I brought you onto yeah. the program, we were chatting about this yesterday, weren't we? I was like, right, yeah. we're gonna have to eat more protein. We're gonna have to get more, you know, meat and eggs. And it was no problem for you, no, no, no questions. You just literally, it's because you were because you were with them for so long as well, right? I bet that helped. Well, in Africa, so it, it, exactly, it's yeah. So you know, popping down to the local spa with the Maasai is is not an option. <laughs> uh, so you you basically you, you're you're self sufficient. You have to make sure your food is with you wherever you're going, and you're normally packing things up and cooking normally in the morning sometimes the night before normally in the morning and then you let things cool down and pack it and, and leave uh the maasai contrary to belief they don't eat the wildlife around them um they tend to herd cattle um so they eat a lot of beef a lot of beef um uh, but they also um and this will sound strange to you they make blood milk as well so they dart um the 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 side of the of the neck of the cow extract some blood mix that with uh to, with with milk to make a, a cheese so you have a blood cheese <laughs> um ogali as well um sort of like a mixed corn bread um various vegetables that you can get around there but normally ogali and meat are the, are, you know is the main diet so normally when i go the first day i go there um i normally bring a, a sheep with me uh, a sheep or a goat um a sheep in particular they love they love uh, and a mature sheep you know mutton is, is is what they like and we've only got used to lamb here um traditionally kings would have wanted mutton that was the really flavorsome meat the mature meat so i take a a mature sheep with me and we have a meat feast when we go there a celebration where the the chiefs and the elders and the the local Moran warriors, everyone is invited, uh, and we we feast that evening around an open fire, um, and that is literally that feast is meat. There is nothing else with it. Um, it's meat that is passed around and around, and each person takes a section of meat. That is the meal. Um, so um, the mass I tend to eat in the morning. So you cook and you eat, you know, the, the mornings in Kenya, especially where we are, because we're quite elevated. Um, you know, if you're looking at Nairobi, Nairobi means place of cold. It, it's cold. It's really cold. So, you know, in the morning there, you're in a fleece to, you know, and a lot of people don't think about that. Um, so in the morning, you sat around a fire, you'll make your breakfast, you'll eat. It gets really warm in the, in the center of the day and then gets colder towards the evening. And the evening is when you eat again. So in that area, you know, that time in between, they don't tend to eat at all. Um, and in fact, they hardly drink at all. It's quite incredible. You know, I'm, I'm there sweating buckets, you know, the, the token Welshman there, lots of water. And you say to them, would you like some water? No, I'm fine. And they carry on. But, you know, if you see it, they are absolutely cut to ribbons. You know, there's no no fat. They have fish. Sweated, aren't they? And they will just run all day i can remember once i was training for a marathon um and i got over there so is there any training panel yeah any of them you know just focus no one no no one bothered training they just 
jog along with me for how many kilometers I thought I could handle. Uh, you know, it was just a stroll in the park to them. They just did that. That's their daily, you know, commute to work. Um, in that, just, <laughs> in that, in that, in that heat as well, isn't it? Yeah. Insane. Um, just to, I guess, kind of wrap this up. I'd like you to share with the audience because even for someone like yourself who's always been fit, healthy, strong, right? Obviously, we had the pandemic. A lot of shit happened in your life and everything else. Um, and obviously, you know, essentially, you kind of let yourself go a bit, right? And then mm. you joined the program and you said like within the first 30 days, you felt better than you had in like over a decade. Right. So talk, talk us through yeah. like, I just, cause people are resonate with this in terms of like um, what kind of happened with you not prioritizing yourself and then how you've kind of switched your mindset and leveled up since you've joined the program. Yeah. Well, well COVID affected me badly. Um, COVID affected some people where they got a sniffle and they said, Hey, do you know, I, apparently I've got COVID and that's fine um it actually killed my biological brother um he died in the in the first year of the pandemic and it affected me quite adversely as well i had a lot of swelling around um uh, my spine basically had swollen up so badly that i lost the use of my left leg completely it was on crutches um to the point that i couldn't even bend my toes so my toes You'd be walking along and then you'd suddenly realise your toes had bent underneath your, your feet and you'd have to stop and try and pull your toes out again. I, mean, I was a wreck. It really, really affected me badly. And it was quite frightening. And because I wasn't exercising or walking around, um, I put on a lot of weight. And there was a picture that my girlfriend took of me uh, and we were sort of sat down and the dog had come over, um, Daisy, and we we had a photo taken and I looked at myself in this photo and I could not I couldn't recognize the person I was looking at. I had put on uh, over a stone in weight. And I just looked terrible. And I knew then, you know, you're shortening your life if you if you if you know, not, and the quality of your life, if you remain like that. So I had to do something and I had to do something quickly. Um, and I started to do um, what I thought was the right thing, which was uh, get out running. We're going to do lots of running. We're going to try and do running. My leg was at a point where I had back pain, but I could now use it again. So I started doing jogging. I started, um, you know, trying to change my diet slightly, doing all the things that you think you should be doing um, to to lose weight. And I think that's the difference was trying to lose weight and lose weight only. Um, and then just by chance, uh, something came up on Facebook with you. Some Then you noticed I had a book coming out and you said, hey, you know, how are you doing? Great. We got chatting. And I was able to say to you, you know, look, this has happened. Oh, hey, you know, I'm running this great program. How do you fancy having a go at it? And I think some of the things, with the take home for me was that, it wasn't the weight I needed to lose straight away. I needed my mobility back because once I got the, the, the stretching and mobility, and this didn't even cross my mind, it was the stretching and mobility that made me feel better. And when I started feeling better, that's when I wanted to be able to increase walking, get down the gym, because all of a sudden now I could execute those, those exercises that I wasn't able to through pain before in, in my hip and leg, 
I don't have anything now. Squatting, I'm doing all sorts of, uh, you've got me contorting in all sorts of different exercises there, uh, which I've never even seen before. Um, and I feel fantastic. And I do, I feel the best I've felt in, in genuinely in over a decade. Um, and you realise that, you know, health and fitness is not something, I, I'm sick of seeing these adverts. Saw one this morning, you know, um, it was it was about um, somebody following the diet that Arnold Schwarzenegger you know, followed and I did this for a day and this is what happened. Really? A day, you know, or a week or a month. These are not, you know, health and fitness is not a short term fix. It's not a push button solution. And oh, there's the answer to this for a week. Now everything's great. Um, you, We've got to get into our heads that that health and fitness journey is is a lifetime journey that we undertake. And and there is maintenance and I always laugh at the fact that we never treat our cars the way that we treat our bodies. You know, we never say, ah, oh, it's run out of oil. It just keep going. Uh, you know, we'd never do that. And so we've got to get that mindset that, you know, health and fitness, we're not going to be health and fit within, you know, healthy and fit within a week of us starting, but we are going to progress and it's going to be a slow progression. There's going to be ups and downs, but you know, if you follow that journey, you're going to have a healthier, happier life and you're going to get more out of life you're going to meet your maximum potential mm, love that man and also uh just no cardio right as well a lot of people get the wrong idea they think yep. of fat loss and they think cardio like you were doing right on the treadmill and spending a lot of time you didn't need to spend now you're putting that and, and also so that's one thing right we've been doing a lot of strength training and then the other yep. thing then is just the nutrition is rather than taking stuff away We've just been constantly adding things in, right? So you don't ever feel restricted either, right? And you've lost seven pounds within the first month as just a side effect of those things, right? Yeah. So I was, uh, just just to go back one step there, I was finishing a weight session and then saying, do you know what I can do now is murder myself by doing a five or a 10K run. This is great. And I wasn't really seeing much difference. Um, and food-wise, I was cutting my food right back. You know, I can't eat this, can't eat that, can't do this. Then working with you, you know, the first thing you say is, well, don't run, walk, just walk, do this. So now I'm enjoying it. I put a podcast on, I go for a nice walk in the country, really enjoying myself, come back. Apparently I've exercised. It's just great. I don't even notice I'm doing it. And then food-wise, you know, I'm getting reminders, you haven't eaten enough, you need to eat more. And it's totally counterintuitive to what you think, you know, you should be thinking, oh, well, you know, uh, calories in, calories out. That's that's the answer to everything. So obviously, if I just stop eating, um, you know, or stop eating these things, but actually you just find you're miserable um, and hungry all the time. You don't feel good. Um, whereas me, you know, I, I'm eating, I, I, you know, sometimes I'm thinking, oh, I, I've got a few more calories. I've got to get in here. You know, I'm never hungry. Um, and... I'm feeling great and I'm eating food. I'm really enjoying it's, it's really, you know, as I said, I, I felt, um, and, and don't take this the wrong way. It, the first month of doing the program, I remember getting through that month and going, God, I feel quite depressed in the fact that not how good I feel now, but I've just wasted, you know, literally years doing these things, these quick fix programs and, wasting money on this particular supplement or doing this or doing that when it was all nonsense. And actually what I needed to do was follow a fixed program 
you know, listen to professionals. We're not very good at listening to experts anymore, are we? But that's what we actually need to do is listen to people in the know. And, you know, I, I went to listen to somebody who I looked at and went, well, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at photos of you. I'm looking how you speak about it. You clearly know what you're talking about because, you know, you're you're walking the walk there, not just talking the talk. And I think that's majorly different as well. You know, if you see somebody looking like you would love to look, it's never going to happen for me, but you know what I mean? I'm never going to reach that, that, that potential. But if you, if you aim there and you get to there, you're okay. You're doing okay. Um, you know, that's the type of person you want instructing you, somebody that's gone there before you. Um, you know, with my students, um, I always, they're always assigned a student mentor, somebody who's one year ahead of them, who has done all the things that they're doing now, has got the badges, they understand exactly what's going on and how to advise them. You know, the last thing they're going to do is come to me for advice on what's the coolest nightclub to go to, Dr. Jones, in, uh, in <laughs> Cardiff. They want to know the person who was there last year. They mm. want to know the person who is walking the walk, doing it, being there, training, looking like that. Okay, and that, that's why I came to you. And a wise man will always learn from other people's mistakes, isn't it? Because I've made so many mistakes on my journey as well. I've been from my own struggles with relationship with food and everything else. And you want to you be able to just save yourself the time and effort, right? And that was interesting. That stood out to me when you said that as well. You said on that call that time, you said, I'm, don't take this the wrong way. You said, but I'm pissed off. <laughs> I was like, what's up? You were like, I've just spent like, you know, 10 years basically spinning my wheels. <laughs> I'm getting better yeah. results for the first year. Um, but yeah, with the strength training as well, you mentioned about um, uh, calories in, calories out, right? And that's just a quick one I always talk about to the audience is you've got to be smart with the calories out part. So you've got to get your body automatically burning more calories by itself. And the way you do that is by strength training, like we've been doing, right? You've been only going to the gym. By the way, Reese has been going to the gym twice per week. And then he was doing a session at home as well. But now he's just doing resistance band and stuff, literally like a few little pump ups at home and then two sessions in the gym. And the results have been insane. I mean, your physique has changed drastically as a side effect, right? Even within the first month. Uh, but a quick yeah. question I have for you, my man. Uh, and also the other thing then is, you know, movement, like you said, like don't yeah. manually, don't manually burn calories by doing cardio. Use that time to lift weights, to elevate your metabolism, build muscle, get stronger, which is going to help you live longer and then move more, move as much as you can. And, as you, and movement's medicine, like you're getting out in nature, you're getting all those, you know, benefits that come with just getting outside and walking and you listen to a podcast, educating yourself. It's just such a simple thing, but people, uh, and people overlook that they, you know, a lot of people kind of sat in their ass and sedentary and, you know, only like 5% of your daily calories are, are basically burnt in the gym. The rest, like 15% of your daily calories are going to be through movement mainly just through what you're doing. In, and then the other, there's another 10% then through the thermic effect of food, which is what Reese is doing by eating high protein. A uh, quick question I have for you, mates, um, is what do you like? I'm just curious to know what you liked about the program that perhaps you weren't expecting to like. Um, definitely, and I use the word very carefully, the diet. Diet to me is what I'm consuming. It's not a lack of calories. All right, we, the, the word is... You know, we, we, we've started to associate diet with a restriction in food. Diet is what you eat. Um, and, I, you know, for me, I've really enjoyed it. So I'm having no issue with that whatsoever. I don't, I don't even need to think about it now. I, I know, you know, the I mean, we are we're tracking calories at the moment. 
um, looking at the type of foods. And I found that really interesting. It was, it was actually really, really interesting. I suppose that, that boffin type is, you know, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> boffin, yeah, just for everyone else. That means, that means nerd. Like, yeah, nerd. Yeah, nerd. <laughs> I, I, I'm quite happy to be called a nerd. Um, but I, you know, I've really enjoyed that aspect of things. So I, I really don't need to think about that now. I know the type of foods that I'm eating and what is working well for me. And I feel no restrictions at all. And I've stopped wanting to snack um, because I don't feel tired and hungry and unhappy anymore. Uh, and that's what does, in my opinion, makes you snack anyway. Um, so that's been really good. The mobility. I, I never thought I'd say this. I thought it was all about the weight training and the, you know, the physique and making myself feel fantastic, but the, the movement. So there's a lot of stretching, a lot of movement. And of course those stretches, they're absolutely essential for you to be able to conduct exact movements when you're weight training, but I never used to employ any of those before. And so doing that now, and feeling that my posture is just, it's just incredibly better. I sit better. I walk better, I feel better, you know, and I've got no pain at all in my back, but no issue since I've started this program, no issue whatsoever, not even a twinge in that leg where doctors told me I might not be able to walk again. That's what I was told. Um, and, you know, nothing more frightening when you lose all the sensation in your leg and you can't even feel your toes and you, you can't move your toes. You know, you're, you're thinking, am I ever going to get better? Now you've got me running around, you know, doing all sorts of different stretches and uh, different weight training. And also the uniqueness of some of the training that we're doing, you know, yeah, and you bench press, yeah, and you shoulder press, yeah. No, but there's all of these different, yeah, um, fantastic different exercises. And many of them, I'm going to be honest with you again now, I looked at the program to begin with, and I went, what the hell is that? How would that do anything? All you do is sit here, do that, and go, oh, wow, okay, <laughs> all right, now I get it. And yeah. suddenly you're like, just having your arms like, oh, my God. Right, okay. The and war press, know, that was the scene, isn't it, when you were against the wall, the just for anyone else listening back. Brutal. Oh, yeah, literally, you're standing against the wall, and you just put the back of your hands and your back against it and press it overhead. It's brutal to do it properly. So there's all of these new exercises that you know i'm incorporating into my training which are just fabulous and and yeah never felt better it really is a great program no i hats off to you man as well because you're one of those people who just does the work you're just hell-bent on actually doing the work and the fact that you value the mobility so much as well because that stuff a lot of people they they want to skim past it and skip it before training just for anyone else listening when he's saying stretching he means the mobility stuff before lifting and you actually build more muscle and get better results anyway. But it just, you got to look after your joint health and you, you want to be doing this to the day you die, right? So, yeah. So I got to give you credit, man, for the work you put in and how much you've implemented, though, because you don't make excuses. You just do the work. And, and, and it really is as simple as that. It's like when I know I can help someone and I know someone is willing to actually commit to the process, it's not even a question that they're going to get a life changing transformation. You know what I mean, mate? And we're already making some serious headway even within a short amount of time. Hey, Reese, we're going to have to wrap this up now, man. Tell the, audience, tell the audience where they can find you and where they can find your book. I know it's up for pre-sale now as well, right? It is, yeah. So we've got um, where you can find me. I'm on social media, basically nearly all social media on uh, as Dr. Jones Wales. So I'll be on Twitter at, at Dr. Jones Wales. I'm on threads as well um uh, on instagram as well as at dr jones wales 
Um, but I'm very proud that I've got um, the, I should say the first part of my autobiography is going to be at least two books, hopefully three, um, which is called uh, Becoming Dr. Jones, uh, A Wildlife. That's available on pre-sale now everywhere. Um, so you can get it anywhere in the world now on pre-sale. Um, August the 3rd, I think it's physically in the bookshops and the official launch is August the 8th, as you quite rightly said. Sorry, I just turned my, uh, my, put my mic on you. Uh, that's worldwide, obviously, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. In all awesome. the bookshops worldwide. So definitely in the States and Australia, because I've seen the adverts. I'm looking forward to reading this. I'm about to order it myself. Um, so for anyone else listening back, I'll put this in the show notes. If you want a good adventurous book to read, right? It's going to be jam-packed with adventures, right? And in your words, you put on the uh, one of the uh, websites there, I saw you're going to learn like 20 different things on each page <laughs> or something like well, that. that wasn't me that said that. That was John Reese davis who said that. It was John Reese davis of course. Yeah, how yeah, could I? John Reese davis So this Dr. Jones, not uh, you know, every Dr. Jones needs a seller, um, but I don't have a seller. I have the seller. I have John Reese davis who obviously very famous for playing seller in, uh, in Indiana Jones, in, um, in three of the Indiana Jones uh, films in the franchise. He's written the foreword to this book, and he's actually – read the book and and his comment was read this book uh and on every page you'll learn 20 things you didn't know his words not mine incredible incredible hey that was awesome man thanks uh thanks for your time reese and uh really enjoyed that there's a lot of value in there for the audience and it was good to talk about different things and actually just talk about your life experience man because that stuff is uh that stuff is fascinating mate pleasure was all mine thank you so much for the invite no worries, man. Thanks, mate.